First, from Matthew. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And from Romans, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please again join with me in prayer? Lord, it is um, a privilege that is beyond really our ability to comprehend that the eternal creator of the universe in whom all things hold together would choose to speak to us. But Lord, that is what you are doing right now in your word. And not only are you speaking to us, but your spirit is actually present in the innermost parts of who we are, opening our minds and our hearts to listen. And so Father, that's what we ask for, um, that we would experience you personally present among us, helping us to hear, helping us to draw nearer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're at week six of our eight-week series uh, entitled Revision, where we are seeking to consider where God is calling us in this next chapter of our church's life. And, and what I'd like for us really to spend most of our time considering this morning is a fairly basic question, and that is what do you, what do we want to do with our lives? I'm sure it's a question that's occurred to all of us at different times. If we think about it for a moment, we realize we only have so much time here on this earth, average about 80, sometimes more, sometimes less. And, and we realize with that time, there's only so much energy we have, so many things we can do, so much that we can give attention to. I remember sometimes I've heard friends, if they really didn't like movies, say, that's two hours of my life I will never get back. And that's, that's recognizing the fact that we have only so much time and energy to spend. And we want to spend it on something that is good, that is worthwhile. What do we want to do with our lives? If you think about it, it's a very human question. You know, birds will fly, birds will eat worms, they'll try to escape predators, but they never say, what's the meaning of all of this? That's, that's something we do. What do we want to do? It's a question in some ways we especially ask when we are younger, right? When we're seeing kind of all of life 
before us, and we don't yet know what our job is going to be, or what a lot of things are going to be, and we're trying to figure out who we want to be, what we want to do. And, and then as we get older, it kind of feels like that question moves to the background because, well, decisions have already been made. We, we start having a career. We have, for some of us, we have a family, and it seems like we stop asking that big question, and we're most just trying to keep up, like make sure that the work project gets finished, the kid's appointment isn't forgotten, the bill gets paid, the email gets responded to, and that's everything. But there's something I think actually about this past year that has brought that question up again because everything has been interrupted. I, I was reading recently uh, an interesting story. It felt like it almost came straight out of the movies of a woman who had gotten in a car crash and, and as a result had complete amnesia. Like the very thing you always see in TV that she could not remember anything. And, and there were months of rehabilitation for her to, to start kind of coming back into herself. And as she started doing that, and she remembered everything eventually, still she was a different person. She prioritized her relationships differently. Her rhythms of life became different. She became more outgoing, less concerned about how people viewed her. And some people who knew her said, well, it's because of the bump. Her, her head changed. But she said, that's not really what it was. It was the interruption. Suddenly, for a couple of months, everything was suspended, and I began to think about who I want to be and what I want to do with my life. And so her life was changed. And there is a real sense, I believe, that that is the question that we are being posed with right now. We have experienced, with all of its pain, a major interruption. Everything has been kind of thrown up in a way where it felt chaotic. And, and now we have this moment where we're looking into the future of putting back together our life and we have to ask this question. Because for many of us, our lives weren't working so well for us, were they? For many of us, we were feeling overly tired, overly uh, overwhelmed, and, and not sure that we were getting where we wanted to go with life. And so now we have this question posed to us. What, what do we actually want to do? We will probably not get a moment like this again. And so it's worth considering. Now, it might surprise you to say that, to hear that the Bible actually spends a lot of time talking about this question of what do we want to do with our lives. It's just we don't realize it because we don't recognize that the answer to the question according to the Bible of what do I want to do with my life is worship. We don't think of this because I think oftentimes when we are thinking about worship, we think in terms of an event, so if you're more traditionally minded, maybe when you think of worship, you think of cathedrals, and you think of um, kneeling, and you think of choirs. Or, or maybe if you're more kind of contemporary, when you think of worship, you think of hands being raised and, and, and euphoric music of praise. And both of those, to be sure, are expressions of worship. But the Bible is clear that worship is not an event. It is a posture Worship is the devotion of ourself to someone or something. It is how we answer the question, what do I want to do with my life? We see that in one of the, the most important New Testament passages about worship, the second one that Jennifer read from Romans 12, 
You have this image, perhaps you noticed it, of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, which, I don't know, kind of feels very foreign, very gruesome almost, but let's just think about it for a moment. So our bodies kind of represent our lives. You know, our body is where our heart is beating. Our body is where we find our energy, our focus. It is kind of like the sum of all that we can do and all that we can give. So to present our bodies as a living sacrifice is an image of us spending ourselves. It's an image of us giving all that we have to someone or something. It is a very tangible image of us doing something with our lives. Offering your body a living sacrifice is another way of saying this is what you want to do with yourself and your life. And notice what Paul calls it. Right after he talks about offering your body as a living sacrifice, he says, this is your true worship. Worship is whatever we spend ourselves on. Worship is a matter of devoting ourselves to someone or something. Worship is whatever your answer is to the question, what do I want to do with my life? Which means worship is not just a Christian thing. Worship is not just a spiritual thing. Worship is a human thing. Everyone worships. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like it describes you. Maybe you're saying, I'm honestly not that deep. I don't have this big life plan. I'm just wanting to make, honestly, myself happy. But let me say that is still answering the question. Because let me ask you, what, what is it that you look to to make yourself happy? However you answer that question is what you are offering yourselves as a living sacrifice to. However you answer the question, this will make me happy, is the same answer to the question of what do I want to do with my life. It is an answer of worship. We all worship all the time. The only question is, are we worshiping the right thing? There are many different objects of worship. Perhaps one of the most common in our very kind of type A western suburbs has to do with work. There are many of us who get our sense of, of self, our sense of fulfillment from accomplishing things well, from as we are working, becoming more and more known by our peers as someone worthy of respect, as successful, as, as slowly moving into a place of feeling like we have accomplished something in our work. That's becoming increasingly common, in fact, as I think I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, in an article written by a guy by the name of Derek Thompson. He actually gives a word to that. He calls it workism. He says, for many, work has morphed into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Work has become our new God. It can become the object of worship. Now, for others, it can be more family. We're saying, I want, whether we consciously say it or not, we say, I give myself my life to say, making my children happy. 
Whatever it takes, I will make my child happy. I will make sure they have organic fruit. I will give them the play dates with the best of children. I will give their lives the proper balance between academics and art and sports, maybe a bit mindful meditation on the side. Whatever it takes, I will make my children happy. That is our worship. We are giving our bodies as a living sacrifice to family. Others might say, honestly, what I'm doing is just whatever at the moment makes, us, makes me feel like this will make me happy. We just are giving ourselves to our desires, whatever those desires might be, whatever in the moment might feel like this is what is satisfying, this is what is good. That is our worship. But the question we need to ask is, is this what we want to worship. What happens when we give our infinite commitments, because that's what worship is, an infinite commitment. What happens when we give our infinite commitments to a finite good? And the answer I would suggest is that it dehumanizes us. So in that same article that I mentioned earlier, Derek Thompson says this about workism. He says, a culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salaried jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, for mass disappointments, and for inevitable burnout. And for some of us who have walked down this path a ways, we know already that that is true because we've experienced it. Or consider what happens when we are giving ourselves everything to trying to make our children happy. When that is our identity, how do you think that actually affects our children? Deep down, they realize that they hold the happiness of their kids, in, sorry, of their parents in their own hands. And that is an enormous burden to bear. And meanwhile, we so place our hope in our kids that any time that there is some degree of conflict or difference or confusion, it can throw us for a loop. We get consumed by it. Or what happens when satisfying our momentary desires becomes our everything? In the brief moments, we feel happier. But over time, we feel more and more empty, longing for something and yet filled with less and less motivation and so we find ourselves just passively binging TV or scrolling endlessly on Instagram looking for something and not finding it. So the reality is we were never meant to give our infinite commitments to a finite good. We were never meant to give ourselves to something that does not last, to something that will fail us. We were never meant to give ourselves to something that is only of finite worth. And, and that is something that ends up emptying us because we were meant for something more. We've been speaking over these past weeks of the different sicknesses that we are seeing in our culture. We right now experience this kind of pervasive tiredness and sadness and hopelessness. 
And a big part of the reason is that we are giving ourselves to things that consume us. To things that were never meant to satisfy. We become less and less human when we give our everything to that which is not worthy of it. And it eats us alive. And this is where we get to, in some ways, the thesis that's operating throughout this series. And that is the hope for all that ails our world is found in the gospel as it is at work in the church. Because the gospel tells us that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God heals us in this as well. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God restores us to the wholeness and to the joy and the rest that is found in giving infinite commitments to one who is infinitely worthy. One of the greatest gifts God gives to us is the gift of worshiping him. Which I realize might seem like a strange thing to think because when we speak of worship, oftentimes in our minds we see of worship as kind of our way of almost paying back a divine debt. If, if God has given to us creation, if God has given to us life, if God has sent his son to die for us, we see worship as kind of like, okay, this is what I need to do to kind of pay what I owe to God. I will now worship because that's the debt I owe. But... Scripture actually speaks differently. Scripture tells us, and I feel like maybe my mic keeps on coming in and out, so I'm just going to be right here just in case. Scripture tells us that actually part of God's kindness, part of his salvation to us, is in restoring us to worship. So, if you remember the story way back in Exodus, when God is redeeming his people from Pharaoh, from Egypt, what does he tell Moses to say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? So that they may worship me. And when he pulls them out of Egypt, he doesn't just stop there. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He brings them to himself so that they might be made whole by worshiping him. Romans 12 has this very same theme of the goodness of God to help us to worship. You might notice at the very beginning of the passage it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. What are, what are these mercies that Romans 12 are talking about? These mercies involve God enabling us once again to worship him. Because sin made an incredible rupture. Sin turned our hearts away from God. Because of our sin, we found God someone that we are afraid of, someone that we want to forget. We do not prize God anymore. And meanwhile, sin has made our, whatever we are, so infused with sin and hypocrisy and half-heartedness that it is not worthy of being brought to God in worship. And that's what Jesus deals with. When Jesus comes and when he dies, and when he rises again, he turns our hearts back to our Father in love. And not only that, but he, he cleanses us. He, he changes all that we have, all that we offer to God, and make it beautiful in God's sight. You know, one of the most remarkable things about these two verses, it's, there's so much here. But we, we skip over one of, the most, one of the best parts of verse 1. So, 
I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And notice what it says about this living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. Do you understand that no matter how half-hearted sometimes you might be, and we are, no matter how feeble our efforts might be, as you seek to offer yourself to God in, in small acts of obedience and seeking to trust him in moments of fear and seeking to give him thanks, no matter how half-hearted they are, they are holy in God's sight because of Jesus. When God looks at our worship, he smiles. We are able to please him. He has given us the gift of being able to once again come to him in worship where we delight in him and he delights in us. It's a gift. Consider also what we see in the other passage, this famous one that we already looked at when we were studying Matthew, but it's worth returning to, where Jesus, he's talking here about worship. Notice when he says in verse 28, or sorry, 27, no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Jesus is saying, I'm the connection point. For you to know God, for you to come to him, you need to come through me, because I'm the one who makes you know God. And then what does he do next? He invites us to worship. When he says, come to me, he says, take my yoke upon you. To take his yoke means to entrust control of our lives to him. It means to surrender all that we are and all that we have to his leadership. It is saying, offer your body as a living sacrifice to me. Jesus here is saying, I have come so that you might worship God. Turn to me, offer yourself to me that you might worship the true God through me. It is a gift that Jesus gives. And notice what he says happens. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, you who have given yourself to everything else. You who have said, this is what I want to do with my life and have offered finite, sorry, infinite commitments to finite goods and you have exhausted yourself, come to me and I will fill you and I will give you rest. If there is one thing that we, I think, need to hear more than anything else this morning, it is this, because it is so deeply counterintuitive. When you are tired, I'm not just talking about physical tiredness. When we're physically tired, we need to rest. We understand that. But when you are tired in a way that sleep will not take care of it, when you are feeling emotionally empty, our inclination is to go in the very opposite direction of what Jesus says. The idea of surrendering ourselves, of offering ourselves to God through Jesus sounds tiring. We want to give ourselves to to Netflix or something that feels 
easier. And Jesus is saying, as long as you follow your intuitions in that way, you will always find yourself more and more tired. Though it doesn't feel like it in the moment, if you turn to me and offer everything to me, that is the way of rest and fullness. Work will eventually always beat us down, but Jesus is gentle and generous. People, no matter how great they are, will fail us. But our God is unerringly faithful and good to us. Temporary things that look good in the moment will ultimately empty us. But our God supremely satisfies. Speaking personally, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just beginning to realize that the things I feel like will make me feel more rested ultimately usually tire me out more. And the things that feel tiring in the moment oftentimes are the things that give me the greatest rest. Let me just use an example from even just last week. You might remember last week I was up front saying, hey, we're going to have this missional prayer gathering at 5.30 today. And I was totally in my mind on board with that. I think this is great. I'll tell you though, at 4.30 when I was outside reading, I'm like, oh. And maybe you understand this. For me, that moment just felt like I am so much more interested in just sitting outside in this beautiful day and reading than going to pray. And yet, here's, here's what happens. Because, I mean, of course, I'm the pastor, so I'm not going to, like, bail out on this. And so I, I come, and with this group of people, as we are singing praise to God, as we are, are turning our hearts towards God in prayer and in his word, I was lifted. I, I left feeling stronger. Now, my point in this is not to say that every one of you should have been at the prayer meeting last week. In, in a different setting, the, might, the right thing might have been for me as I was seeking to worship God just to sit and rest and be quiet. My, my point actually is that oftentimes the way of following Jesus and offering ourselves to God in worship looks and feels hard. But it is always ultimately the way in which we find rest. And what I want to encourage you just to consider for a moment is this promise that Jesus gives you. Because it is what we, what our, our culture so desperately needs to know, that the, the only good answer to the question, what do I want to do with my life, is the answer of giving our infinite commitment to someone who is infinitely lovely infinitely good to us, infinitely worthy of every moment of our energy, and to realize that as we do this, this and this alone is what makes us truly human, truly full, truly joyful. In our remaining time, I know we've been just kind of talking more generally about this idea of offering ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice in worship. I want to just end with kind of three slightly more practical descriptions of how we might go about pursuing this life of more and more leaning in to worship of our God. And to make it memorable, I'll make them rhyme. So I want to encourage us to organize, to prioritize, and to recognize. 
First, to, to organize. Here, here's the reality that probably many of us have already come to recognize. That is, the decisions that most form us are oftentimes the one we're barely conscious of. The, the, the way that our calendar is designed, the way that our habits are in the day, these are what form us. And so if we really want to know what it is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to experience the rest that is found in worship through Jesus, we need to see our calendar planning and our daily habits as an expression of our worship. If we are meant to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, that also includes us offering our calendars as a living sacrifice. So let me encourage you to take, you know, we are in this time where we have summer, we have some space to do kind of an audit of your habits, of your calendar, of the decisions that you are making and to ask, how can I more organize my habits and my life to encourage a life of true worship of my God? Perhaps this is something that you could spend some time writing about or maybe talking with a friend about or if you're married, you can talk with your spouse. If you're looking for kind of more concrete ways of doing this, there's a great book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, and it's all about just thinking about how do we organize our habits to turn us in worship of God. That would be a great place to start. But let me just say, if you don't step back sometime to think about this, do you think that your life will accidentally fall into worship of God? And if you don't set aside time now, when is the better time to be able to think this through? Let me encourage you, as I am thinking it through myself, to think through how can you organize your lives in such a way for it to be conducive to living in worship towards God? Organize. Second, I want to encourage us to do, this is an example of doing what you are already doing, and that is to prioritize our Sunday morning gathering, even in moments such as this where it is a bit steamy. So yes, we have already been saying that all of life is worship. Everything is worship. And yet, what we are doing here right now, though it might not feel like it at times, is the high point. And the reason is because you and I were meant to worship together. Worship was meant to be communal. In fact, I don't know if this surprises you, but so often when we are trying to figure out what it looks like to offer ourselves to God, God says, here's how you can worship me best, by serving each other. So if we were to continue in Romans 12, right after these language, this language of, of worship, then Paul says, okay, so here's what this means. You are all a body of Christ. Each of you need to bring your gifts and service to each other. That's how you worship God. Or, or Hebrews has similar kind of language when it talks about it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have with others. And listen to this, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Notice that sacrifice language. It's saying the way that we show our love for God and worship to God is as we share with others. Or Ephesians says, and this one I always found a little bit awkward because it says we're supposed to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. And for me, I was like, okay, this is odd. Are we going to all just like look at each other while we're singing? I don't think that's the point. The point is that as you and I sing, we are lifting each other up. As we sing, as we're praising God, what we're doing is we're also encouraging others to praise God. There is something communal where the way we love God is by loving others. 
And so that means the supreme expression of worship is when we gather together as this potluck, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, with all of us bringing what we have to serve each other as we worship God together. This is why Hebrews says, don't neglect the weekly gathering, because you need this. This, this is also the way that God continues to train us. In some ways, you can think of this as our weekly spin class for worship, where, where every week we are being trained. We might feel like we have a hard time with praying, but then we get to come together and we're lifted up on each other's prayers and we're strengthened in prayer. We might feel like we have a hard time sometimes hearing God, but then we come together and we're part of this large group where we're all working to hear God. We might feel sometimes we struggle with pride, but then we gather together here and we humble ourselves in confession. Everything we are doing is part of God training us together, preparing us so that we can continue to live lives of worship throughout the week. And so the simple point here is just, if we truly take seriously this call to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, we need to prioritize our Sunday morning gathering as we are doing. And finally, let me conclude, not only organize and prioritize, but recognize. And here I want to return to the theme that we've already said, recognize that worship is a gift, not an achievement. Recognize that it is not us who are dragging ourselves up to God, kicking and screaming, but it is our God who comes down and gathers us in his arms and brings us to himself. This is why our service always begins with the call to worship, because it is a reminder that our God is the one who initiates and draws us to himself. Now, this has important implications for every aspect of life, but since we're pretty much out of time, I want to just zero in on how that should affect the way that we think of even Sunday morning. I was reminded not too long ago of a pastor that I heard speak saying that, um, or actually I heard of speaking, said that, you know, for 10 years, he was about this job of kind of every Sunday morning trying to whip himself up and whip the congregation up into this kind of emotional point so that they, with their experience of happiness or that kind of thing, could be ready to worship God. And I wonder if you know what he's talking about. Do you ever have that feeling that, okay, I have to get my mind right, I have to get my mood right, I have to get myself right if I'm supposed to be worshiping God this morning? And at a certain point, here's what he concluded. He said, I am weary, and I am tired, and I've come to see that the center is all wrong. See, when you gather, it is not us who drives ourselves up to God. It's God who lovingly carries us to himself. Uh, theologian Jamie Smith wrote this, that we are not the primary actors when we worship. God is. We don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts. He reforms our desires. He rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. He retrains our hearts. In other words, however committed we might be as we're growing to try to, to, to know God and worship him, our God is so, so much more deeply committed than we are to us. 
And that means that when we come, we can rest. We can just wait. We can allow God to turn our hearts to him. And so as I conclude, I'd like to invite us to do that even right now. As you have been hearing God speak to you in his word, I invite you to just take a moment to respond in prayer. Maybe that is in gratitude, or maybe it is as you think about how you have been giving yourself in other ways to acknowledge your sin, to be transparent about that, to confess your sin, and to ask for God's help as he is one who will renew us and retrain us.